I'm Matt Swain, and you're listening to the Reimagining Communications Podcast, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges facing companies on the road to optimizing their communications for the future. I'm joined by Rob Krugman, Chief Digital Officer at Broadridge. Rob, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So, Rob, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is, is last year, you worked with the digital agency Huge to take on a view of what the optimal communications experience might look like in 2025. You had some of the smartest minds in the design industry reimagining bills and statements for the future. And, and obviously that works really well on a podcast titled Reimagining Communications. So can you talk a little bit about the details of that process, the ideas that were generated and the learnings garnered along the way? Absolutely. So when it came to the huge exercise and the work that we did with them, one of the real desires was to take a group of really, really smart people, have them investigate and come up with ideas for something that they typically don't think about, right? These are people that typically spend their day thinking about digital experiences, thinking about websites, thinking about video, thinking about all different types of communicate. Really, experience is probably the best way to say it. And said, okay, have at it. Here's a concept. Here's what we want to get done. So these are not information designers that live and breathe design of a bill or statement, but have a broader agency. I would call them information designers, but okay. no focus on the bill and statement experience. Excellent. And I think it was a very intriguing concept as a result because there's something that they all deal with, you know, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, and kind of giving them the ability to just innovate and think about new ideas. And one of the lenses we put on it, we wanted them to focus on things that were realistically viable. Right? So it wasn't flying cars, and I always joke that we talked about not having flying cars, but there are now flying cars. But ideas based upon what we know today, what realistically could be feasible over the next five or six years. And so that was kind of the brief that we actually put in front of them. And we basically said, go at it. And each team really came with a different approach. Some of the team was focused more on the physical experience. Some of the teams were more data-driven people. Some of them were more user experience people-driven. And the ideas really varied in what they came up with. But there were quite a bit of synergies as well. Is 2025 too far out, though? I mean, why, why did you pick the year 2025 for this exercise? You know, I, I think we, uh, we threw it out there as a number to say, let's look, you know, somewhere into the future, but not so far into the future that it's not realistic. Yeah. That said, 2025 is a number. You look at it, and you're like, oh, my God, that's like 20 years from now. It's not. Um, right? It's like seven, eight years in the future. But the way that we put really the brakes on it a little bit was saying the underlying technologies that are leveraged in these solutions should be things that are realistically available, right? So right. they have to be things that you could imagine based upon what we know about technology today would realistically be available over the next seven or eight years. So I think that, I don't wanna say it diminished their ability to be creative, but it put some parameters around it so that we weren't coming out there with ideas that were so completely futuristic that they really couldn't be realistic. So it's something that could be put into production theoretically today, but might be the, the the cost barrier to doing so today might be too high or the production reality might not be there yet. I think that's a good way to think about it. It may be like two years from now, you can see the services and capabilities that are in market today maturing to such a point that they would be viable. And so one of the terminologies I've often used is if you think about an auto show and you go to an auto show and they have a concept car, right? The concept car is all viable. Everything that's on that car is something that they were able to actually build. But practically, they may not include it in a production-ready car today, but you could see where you could actually get in the market. And I think if you kind of think about it from that perspective, it allows the mind to be fairly open as far as where you go, but has a, a number of parameters around it so you don't go too completely outside the box. So what was the feedback? Because I know you've been mm -hmm. 
out talking about this story. You've you've presented at various events. You're client facing with this storyline and, and the, the findings. What's the feedback been like? So I think the feedback has been really positive. You know, the feedback from a press perspective has been excellent. We we were actually spoken about in a number of really interesting places. One of the things that we were really excited about was Fast Company announcing us in, as one of the best UX designs for 2017. And it was really interesting for a company or a magazine like Fast Company to take notice of design trends around bills and statements. Because I think there's a problem that everyone's trying to solve for and everyone deals with on a very frequent basis, but they probably don't think about it, right? It's just kind of always worked the same way, essentially. So the feedback in the press has been great. The feedback with clients has been really, very interesting because I think what we challenge people to do in the outcomes of this challenge people to think about bills and statements outside of what they typically think about them as. And so what do I mean by that? If you are um, an organization that sends bills, typically that process is an operational driven activity, right? It's I'm sending someone a bill so that they'll pay it. But I think what we uncovered through this process and kind of thinking about the consumer experience is that that experience or that touch point is actually much, much more valuable than that. It is an opportunity to connect with your client, your customer, reinforce the value propositions that are important to you and hopefully important to them, personalize that experience so it resonates with that customer, not only gets them to pay the bill hopefully faster, but actually gets them to tie the value that you bring further into their lives so they become you know, a net promoter, they recommend you to their friends and family, and they recognize the value of the service that you're bringing potentially in compared to your competitors which is a lot, but if you think about what a bill is, it's very feasible you should be able to accomplish those things. Yeah, and, and I think there are oftentimes challenges in getting a message across that the bill is that important of a communication yep. in, in the mix. I'd be curious to hear from some of those discussions with the marketing department that maybe historically didn't really view the bill as part of their domain Maybe operationally it's not, but in terms of using that to help drive that engagement. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective. I think that we're probably 10 years into this customer journey approach. Um, it may not have started off being called the customer journey, but we're very much into this focus on the idea of a customer journey. And so if we think about customer journeys from a marketing perspective, we really have tried to align and really attach all of the different touch points we have with customers to try to get them to do something. What's that next best thing we want them to accomplish? Then we think about bills and statements and letters and notices and even regulatory communications that have largely been kept outside of that customer journey. And it's a really interesting paradigm because when you talk to a chief marketing officer or a chief digital officer at an organization and you challenge them and say, for example, I know 12 touch points that are not part of your customer journey today. And they're really important ones. And they, they say, be, no way, right? No way. They look at you like you may have two or three heads. And then you say, the bill or the statement. And they kind of look at you with this quizzical look that says, how in the world did we not think about the bill or the statement as being part of the customer journey? There's a great focus and the experiences and the way these systems work together to deliver that marketing experience is so, so powerful. And how do we get this individual to take that next best action into to buy the next product or to present the next piece of information? But the fact that the bill, something that we know people look at, because there is a negative action that occurs if you don't look at a bill. Eventually, the service will no longer be there for you um, and you'll have a problem. And so recognizing that and maybe modifying 
the bill into something that may be perceived as a negative because it's an asking for money to something that's more perceived as a positive where the organization can, again, reinforce the value that they bring to this relationship and have that relationship work for the customer in different ways is really exciting. And I think as we look at what concepts were generated out of this future of communications exercise, a lot of them really spoke to the power of the information. How do we take the information in that bill or statement and allow it to work for the well-being of the end recipient, the consumer? I think the interesting thing, especially in, in your role where you're looking at strategy innovation, that you get in fr- you get in front of a client or a you know, a panel of of companies and and you have the opportunity to share this this vision and this exciting work that we've done and then you have this kind of screech of breaks where <laughs> whoever whoever you're in front of says well that's great but we still don't see value in doing it so yeah. I, I appreciate that you've looked into this but we're we're not there that happens a lot and I think one of the ways that you kind of get past that and is, you know, as I think about how should organizations be thinking about their communications program holistically, right? So you have on the left-hand side, we have the marketing program. On the right-hand side, we have what we often refer to as essential communications, bills and statements and notices and letters. They have to work together. But as we think about how do you get started with something like that, what are you really trying to achieve? One of the interesting things that we've noticed is Five or six years ago, when you spoke to organizations about this stuff, the number one KPI most organizations were measuring essential communications around was paperless savings. How can I turn off the paper and drive a digital communication, really an electronic communication through email? And one of the things that we've challenged a lot of our clients around is let's actually create a scorecard and identify a series of KPIs to measure this program. Right, So paperless adoption is definitely an important thing to look at, but there's lots of other things to look at as well. Can this communication get people to pay faster? Right Now that KPI, you can make a really strong argument, will always be worth more than a KPI around paperless adoption. Can we use this communication to drive people to less expensive channels for customer service so they can self-serve themselves on questions they may have about the communication versus actually having to pick up the phone and call the call center? Again, an other really valuable cost savings opportunity that could dwarf the cost savings opportunity around the paperless communication. And so when you start to kind of expand that KPI measurement or the kind of the, the touch points, the analytics that you're measuring it starts to become very interesting because people start to change their minds about how they measure these programs. And one of the interesting ones is around the paperless. So I want to drive paperless adoption. I want to turn off the print. Well, there's a big question that says, should that really be the end goal? Is there another version where you say, I want to redesign the print experience so the print experience becomes less expensive for me to actually process and distribute? But It's a natural extension to the digital experience that I have on my website, my app, whatever channel I may actually want to communicate with you through. And I think if you tie those two together, it can be very interesting because there's a a really interesting workflow now or really journey. Let's use the customer journey perspective where you may start with print. It drives a digital conversation. And I think one of the most misunderstood words in the lexicon today is omni-channel versus multi-channel. They're often used as the same, but they're a real difference. Right? Multi-channel is, I'm going to communicate with you through channel X, through channel Y, or channel Z. Omni-channel is recognizing that I'm probably going to communicate with you through channel X, through channel Y, and through channel Z all at the same time. And really to drive the best actions, what we can now do 
is we can associate then analytics, right? The, one of the best things we have from a digital perspective is the ability to analyze how things work. We can capture all different types of metrics and we can test, right? So the A-B testing that our brethren on the marketing communication side and on the website side and on the app side have been doing for many, many years, which has really been left absent from the essential communication space, we can now start to apply so we can see which messages resonate. They may resonate for different audiences, so we can start to separate out the messaging that we can use. That messaging can be used to drive faster payment. It could be used to drive reminders. It could be used to drive all different types of things, but we can now measure that, and that becomes really important. Yeah, and I, I think the, the measurement is a key piece of the storyline in selling the value of any enhancement in a program, right? It's it, the data's there. How do we best measure and analyze the success of any uh, fine tuning that we've done to our system and then rinse repeat, right? So it's, you're, you're constantly fine tuning and tr trying to figure out, okay, if, if I push this message through this channel, does it change this behavior? And to your, your points around a communication scorecard, you know, how does it improve the overall quality of communication across all channels in that omni-channel environment? Definitely. And I, and I think the, the analytics really are, that's the measurement that we need to be identifying, right? The KPIs that we measure may be outcomes, but looking at the metrics, it's really interesting when you start to investigate two communications that seemingly look exactly the same. And there may be minor tweaks in the messaging, the way that we refer to something, maybe in the image that we use on one versus the other. Those tweaks can make dramatic differences depending upon which audiences we're trying to reach. And then recognizing what resonates with your audience allows you to constantly evolve these communications. And I think, and I know, if you think about a lot of electronic communications in this space that we talk about, your bill is ready, click here to come and get it. Right. Not very engaging at all. Right. But if we reinforce those communications and test different ideas and different concepts, not only can we make those real touch points where there's real value between both parties, there's no end state. And that's one of the things I think a lot of people need to understand. In the print world, you typically do a statement redesign once every X period of years. In the digital world, if you're smart, you're probably re redesigning the communication, certain aspects of the communication, every single month. Because you're changing the dynamics based upon the feedback that you're getting real time so that you can modify the communication so it resonates further with this customer base. Some things will work, some things won't. That's okay. That's why we do the testing because we can see what's resonating and we can always modify on a consistent basis. So that actually brings up an interesting point because you have, so at times you have separate teams that are managing the print experience and the digital experience. And they're also wired differently for the reasons that you've, you've laid out, that you have a print redesign takes months to implement oftentimes depending on, on the size of the, the changes. And then you kind of, you leave it, right? I, I did my redesign, check the box and move on. In the digital world, you're constantly fine-tuning, but at the same time, you want the channels to be working together. So how, how, do you, how do you get to a point where you're redesigning print in a way that that experience can reflect any fine-tuning that you're doing on the digital experience? I, I think one of the key words we have to get comfortable with is simplification. So let's say we want to tie a print and a digital experience together. Now, if we look at the print experience, let's look at a bill. Right, bills maybe used to be 10, 15 pages long. Maybe now they're two or three pages long. I can make a strong argument that that's still too long. Right? Why should the bill be more than a page? Right? And let's call out and let's redesign it from the perspective of the recipient. What do they care about? 
right? Let's call out some of that pieces of information. And then let's highlight that if you want the detail, well, the detail is available on our website. So you can always dig further and further and further in or the app. So you can tie the two pieces together, right? So it allows you to modify the paper experience to support the digital experience. Now, it's a valid question of whether you should be looking at what's working in the paper experience and continually modifying it. I don't know if technically we're actually there yet, but at least we can redesign it from the perspective that we want to drive a digital conversation. On the digital side of things, we absolutely can resonate on an ongoing basis. And one of the big things that we often talk about is the underlying regulated document, right? So almost every industry that we deal in, the underlying bill, the statement, the trade confirm, the regulatory document has regulations around it. What needs to be in there? What doesn't need to be in there? Well, we comply with those in the underlying document. But in the digital world, and maybe even in the paper world, we can start to build experiences on top of that document. So you always have access to the full, complete document if you want to read it. But that summary that sits on top of it really can be personalized to the recipient. So it hits on the pieces of information that they care about. And so I think it's a good way of allowing the user to dig further and further in if they want to or pull further out. And they can, they can dig in as deep as they want. And based upon the information we now gather as far as what they're interested in doing and how far they do dig, they dig in, you now understand what better to communicate with this individual to, where individual A or customer A may get an experience that is very high level. They only care about when it's a due, what's the due date. And if they want to look at the details, they'll go to the website. You know, there might be someone in the middle that wants a little bit of details, and there might be someone on the right-hand side that wants all the details, and you could accommodate that. So do you envision a time when the consumer is fully building out their their view, their their personalized, customized view, and, and then know that there's still the regulatory required document stored somewhere in an archive if you have to get back to it? I think so. I, I, You know, what's interesting about, so if I go back to the examples that we created with Huge, what was really interesting about some of them is that they were very data-driven, right? So essentially, you could still look at the underlying document, but it wasn't about the underlying document. It was about the data and how that data can be aggregated together to solve for certain problems. So the two of the three finalists really focused on this idea of using data to power assistance to make the consumer's life easier, right? So an example would be, let's take a consumer that lives week to week, right, and finds it difficult to pay their bills. Could the underlying data from the bills help them to create a payment schedule and then to work with their providers to maybe realign the dates that things are due that makes it a heck of a lot easier for them to not only pay on time, but to pay in a way that they're not overextending themselves, right, which is really interesting. How do you then take that information and support it with other things? Maybe there's reward programs underneath the covers that the consumer is thinking about other activities that they want to take. And one of the examples we use is the individual wants to take a trip. And the ability of the different providers that are sending them communications to be able to feed data that this person now can see that, you know what, They're, one of their credit card companies can actually help them pay for the airfare with points. An other one can get them a hotel room. Their telco company can get them an actual international plan that works in that particular marketplace. And maybe one of their other providers can recommend other capabilities, right? So using that data to really solve for consumer need is very interesting. What the basis, though, is the content that we send people in bills. And so one of the things that we've been focusing on in addition to reimagining the communications is as a company that for many years has thought about and helped our clients to store this information, arguably in the same way that we store it physically, we put it in this box. It might be a digital box, 
And we really never think about it. We may make it available on our website so you can link to a document to look at it. But the reality is there's really, really good data there. So can we use that data as a repository to create experiences so that, in an example, someone calls the call center and they want to know when they bought shares in a particular company, the system instantly can identify the trade con firm and respond, you bought that company at this much per share on this date. Would you like me to send you an updated version of the trade con firm electronically? That's a powerful experience that doesn't require any individual people to participate. So it's a, it's a customer service value proposition that doesn't require additional humans to actually solve for it. Think about the other experiences you can generate on top of this data. There is membership reward points typically inside these communications. There's all different types of nuggets that we can use to create these experiences without necessarily having to create a new data lake or a new piece of information that's really complicated to put together just because of the intricacies that typically exist within an organization. Our communications become the basis for that. It's pretty exciting stuff. Your role in general is an exciting position to be in within the organization because, you know, as chief digital officer, you're leading strategy and innovation for for digital, and uh, you've you've hit on a few of the areas that you're probing on. But I'd be really curious to hear what what are some of the other exciting things that you guys are doing. Yeah, so we're really intrigued, and I think the entire industry is intrigued by the role of AI and the role of voice. Right, so I, I think we've all been, and many of us have purchased products like Amazon Alexa or Google Home or you know, Siri, and inherently, they make a lot of sense. And I think what we've seen over the last 18 months is that those technologies, which seemed kind of futuristic and really cool, and maybe they worked okay, maybe they didn't work okay, are starting to mature at a very, very, very fast pace. And so the idea that every consumer is going to have access to a virtual assistant that can perform tasks for them, which may include paying bills, which may include executing trades, which may include all different types of things. It's really interesting to think about how do you take that kind of AI and voice-driven concepts, leverage the data we have from a communications perspective, because what it really, to, to work properly, you need data, right? So the more data we can feed in, the more interesting it becomes. And I think putting those two pieces together becomes interesting. The other aspect is because of IoT, we now have what I call the kind of the ecosystem of the home, right? The fact that you can talk to a device that's connected to your telephone, that's connected to your television, that turns your lights on and off. It really introduces some interesting things. Could I imagine walking into my house and the virtual assistant telling me that there's notifications for me? I ask, hey, what's going on? It says, well, you have three bills that you received today. You know, the utility bill is 200 bucks. The mobile bill is this and um, your credit card bill came in show me my credit card statement on my television, right? These things seem like George Jetson type capabilities, but those things are all viable right now. We can do every single one of those today. And I think over the next two or three years, you're gonna see a lot of proof of concepts. You're gonna see a lot of pilots around those concepts and those ideas because it inherently works for today's consumer. Four or five years ago, there were still organizations that would tell you that the reason that parts of their organization or parts of their client base are not digital it's because they're not really digital people. I think today we know that inherently every demographic that we support, whether they're 18 years old or they're 85 years old, is inherently digital. They're just digital in different ways. And I think if we can tie into the way that they're digital and how they prefer to work digitally, that's how we're going to have the most success. And so what we've often referred to it is, you know, companies have always taken this idea of come to us, come to my website, come to my app, call me on the phone. I think we're going to see a 
major migration in come to me where the companies go to the consumer and they work within the channels and the devices and the locations and the methods that the consumer prefers, which is pretty exciting. So the theme of a lot of what you just went through is data and the power of data. And then that takes you to the next question that I'm sure you always get is, how are you protecting my data? Are you abusing my data? Whether it's as you know a client of, of the company or the end consumer, how do you respond to that? Listen, data protection is really important. Um, it's really important as an organization like Broadridge who captures and, and manages so much information on behalf of our clients. And it's something that we take very seriously. And we obviously spend not just a lot of money on it, but we really think it through. I think the most interesting thing that's happened probably over the last four or five years are two privacy regulations. One is in effect and one that's coming. So the first is GDPR, which many people are familiar with in the European markets. And the second, which was recently passed in California, is the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is essentially at the highest level, while there's differences, is GDPR for California. And there's many other states now following suit. And so I think when you develop applications today, it's really important to ask yourselves, whose data is it, right? And if I went back a few years, the majority of our customers would tell you that it's their data. I could make a really strong argument that it's not. It's the customer's data. And I think if you think that way and you recognize that all the data that we're working with is really the property of the consumer, and they should have the ability to tell us how they want to use that information, who they want to share that information with, when they potentially want to delete that information, all of which is covered by GDPR and the California privacy rules, it changes the game significantly. Now, for many organizations, it's very scary to think about that their customer is now the one that controls the information because they've monetized the information in a lot of different ways. But I think if you actually start creating products from the perspective that I need permission from my customer to do anything that I'm going to do with this information, it starts to open up all new types of opportunities. I think it eventually leads to the fact that what we call preferences today, which are largely questions that we ask our customers to give us permission to do things, will become instructions tomorrow. And it sounds like the same thing, but they're really fundamentally different. When we have a validated identity, if a consumer says, I want you to do this, that's an instruction. And if the consumer has validated their identity and we're sure that they are who they say they are, that opens up a whole new set of opportunities, right? Could, for example, and one of the things we're working on is could a consumer say, hey, these are my delivery preferences. I'd like you to apply them across all the relationships that I have. So you start to introduce these concepts of network effect where consumers can simplify the experience of going digital by setting instructions about themselves and then allowing a network of companies to have access to those instructions or not, depending upon what they want to do. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting from a consumer perspective to be able to have the power to set their preferences once. And, and at times they might say, for this type of communication, I want print, but for these, I want digital to my mobile device or just push it to push a reminder to my email. But it would be really interesting to see how the business responds to pulling from that one centralized preference management hub. I think it becomes interesting from a, you know, there, there's two things that often have to be asked. Not every company is necessarily interested, for example, in delivery preferences because they may be very digital today. I think it's the different attributes that you potentially capture. So what if, for example, one of the attributes is, this is how I want to electronically pay you. 
And I can update it when I want to update it and alert all the companies that I pay that this is the new way I want to pay, that I've moved, that I've had a child and I have a new beneficiary, that I want to receive marketing content because I did just have a child, right? So the ability to change that, that dynamic is very, very interesting. And I think it's scary for a lot of the, the bigger technology companies that we know that kind of make their living off of data, right? If you're Facebook or Twitter or Google, where largely you've been taking this data and you've been using it to drive advertising and marketing, I think there's a natural hesitancy here to say, uh-oh, if I don't have the consumer's permission, I can no longer do that. And the rules say I actually can't charge them anymore for the service that I'm currently providing. What if you flip it and you say, hey, consumer, what are you interested in? And the consumer defines what they really care about and says, I want you to share this with these companies because I want this type of information. Not only does the lead become much more valuable, it actually gives you insight into how to communicate with this individual. Right. And yeah. it leads more valuable, which can lead to higher price per click impression as well. Also, a huge amount of protections. If we think about all the cyber-related issues that we deal with today, it's because people hold data that consumers really don't understand about. Right. Think about companies that you may no longer have a relationship with. They still have data about you. Right. And so one of the big things that we see in GDPR, for example, and it'll be in California as well as some of the other rules that are coming out, is the need for to be forgotten. Right. Where I can pick up a phone and I could call up and I could say, hey, company, forget me and make all the data portable. Give it to me. Yeah. Right? That's a really interesting capability, because if you think about the way that we manage and we store data today, it inherently doesn't solve for that, right? And it's typically we're solving for regulations where we need to store content for a certain period of time because the regulation says so. How do you then take that type of requirement and now associate another rule that says the consumer should be able to tell you to delete all their information? And we're, we're doing a lot of work in this area to kind of separate the two out. So maybe you do store the underlying document or piece of content for seven years because you have to, but all the metadata that points that and attaches that to a specific consumer is deleted. So you still have the content for e-discovery if necessary, but the information about that consumer has largely been removed from your systems, right? right? This is, these are regulations that every company, frankly, on earth is going to have to start to deal with. They started out of the EU. They're now in the United States, and they're going to be everywhere. And I think if companies are smart about it, they'll recognize not only does this make it easier for them to protect consumer information because they're doing everything with permission, which we necessarily weren't doing before, but it opens up a lot of new business opportunities because with permission, it gives us the ability to do things that we probably weren't doing before. It's an interesting spin on what opportunities is it going to create besides the, the what headaches is it going it, to create. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. So, so let me use your 2025 uh, future point. If we were doing this podcast again in 2025 and talking about the market, what's one thing that, that you – expect us to be able to come back and say, man, we're, we're glad we solved that problem. Remember back in, in 2018, what we were talking about? Look how far we've come. I think that there's, there's two that come to mind. The first one's going to be something you probably don't expect. It's identity, right? The biggest driver to digital adoption and making it easier for consumers to connect with and communicate with the companies they have relationships with is identity. Because if you think about us today, we have so many different forms of credentials that we use online. A lot of those credentials are not really secure credentials, um, right? I could be a dog. No one knows. But I think there's a lot of work that's going on in that space 
where we're seeing banks enter the fray and make their identities available for consumers to use in new ways. Telco companies are entering that fray. That's really exciting stuff. And I think we're going to see the elimination of usernames and passwords. So your identity now becomes an entry token that you can use to communicate in lots of different ways. And I think once that solves, if you think about the majority of friction that exists in online experiences today, they're almost 100% associated with identity. How do you verify and how do you know this person is and what they can do? So that's kind of one piece. The second piece is the recognition that experiences are going to be driven by data and getting the data correct is important. But I also think building the systems to recognize that the data is going to evolve, right? So a lot of the systems that support communication today do so in a way, kind of in a structured, standardized way. There is a bill due. It's this is the bill date. This is how much is owed. This is how you pay it. Moving to more of an object-oriented model where we can take that data in and that data can vary. It can be very container-driven where there's anything an organization has that they potentially want to communicate out can be included in this bundle of data. Then you put smart systems on top of it that know how to read that information and create experiences. I think that that's something where there's a lot of work going on in market right now. I know we're doing a lot of work in, as are others. That component is going to be very important today. It's also going to be very important in 2025. It's going to evolve in 2025 because there's going to be new ways to communicate that we're not thinking about today. But you know, making the data accessible and delivering it in a way that's flexible becomes really important. So interesting. And, and, and thank you, Rob, for a really provocative uh, position here on where the market's heading. So uh, with that, thank you. I'm Matt Swain, and you've been listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast. To learn more about Broadridge, our insights, and our innovations, please visit broadridge.com or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn.